from NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. The White House is trying to reach a deal with a bipartisan group of senators for funding for Ukraine and Israel. And a massive solar flare last week caused radio blackouts in Central and South America. Find out if more flares may be on the way. Plus, a holiday music showdown for the ages. We had to bring in some special guests for this one. You are required to sing your response. <laughs> Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. <laughs> Jack Frost nipping at your nose. It's Sunday, December 17th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The foreign ministers of the UK and Germany are declaring there is an urgent need for a ceasefire in Gaza. The Lamarck's reports from London on the leader's joint op-ed published by the Sunday Times newspaper. David Cameron and Annalena Baerbock wrote that a, quote, sustainable ceasefire in Gaza was necessary, adding that, quote, too many civilians have been killed. They urged Israel to end its operations as quickly as possible, but also wrote that unless Hamas lays down its weapons, then they would not call for a ceasefire to be immediate, as that, quote, ignores why Israel is forced to defend itself. This joint position appears to put the UK and Germany at odds with usually close ally France, with the French foreign minister arriving in Tel Aviv Sunday insisting Israel should announce a, quote, immediate and durable truce. The French government also demanded details about a strike in Gaza by Israeli forces that killed an employee of the French foreign ministry. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in London. The International Rescue Committee's International Watch List of Global Crises has just been released, examining 20 countries that hold about 10 percent of the world's population, who at the same time face the vast majority of the planet's humanitarian challenges. The report attempts to track both progress and lost ground in places that face humanitarian crisis. Most of the clients of the International Rescue Committee are women and girls, and they face double and treble trouble not just the poverty and the displacement, but also the violence that they suffer. Yet, only 1% of total humanitarian funding goes to women-led organizations. That's something that the non-governmental sector can help put right. That's David Miliband, who heads the IRC. The report also looks at the correlation between calamities and armed conflicts. Miliband says the world's climate crisis puts tremendous pressure on resources, especially land resources, which in turn creates conditions of war. The Finnish prime minister says Russia is continuing what he called a hybrid attack by pushing people to try to claim asylum in his country. Terry Schultz reports Finland tried to reopen the border with Russia but shut it again within hours. It's the first time since Russia started transporting large numbers of migrants to its border with Finland in August that Finnish Prime Minister Petri Orpo used the term hybrid attack. Orpo said Moscow's actions were aimed at the European Union as well as Finland and that Russian authorities are involved. Over the last several months, hundreds of people, primarily from Iraq, Somalia and Syria, were taken to one of eight stations on the 830-mile border and then urged to enter Finland and request asylum. The Finnish government shut down the border stations last month, hoping that would be enough to deter Moscow. Now, after the brief reopening, Finnish Interior Minister Mari Rantanen says the crossings will remain closed until at least January 14th. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. 
The newly released report from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development shows a sharp increase in homelessness in Massachusetts. The state experienced the fifth highest increase in homelessness in the U.S. That's more than 3,600 newly unhoused people or more than a 23% increase year over year. Neighboring New Hampshire experienced the largest percentage increase year over year with a 52% jump in the number of people experiencing homelessness. Harvard's early admission applicant pool is dropping. Statistics published by the university publication The Harvard Gazette found a 17% dip from last year's number of applicants, also the lowest number in four years. Just under 9% of nearly 8,000 students were offered early admission. The early admission application deadline was November 1st, shortly after campus unrest began in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war. Several local organizations are teaming up to ensure that seniors have a happy holiday season. This is the 17th year of the Santa to a Senior campaign here in Massachusetts. Seniors can request a gift on a cardboard ornament, which will be on display at several local stores. Shoppers will buy the gift and then drop it back off. The gifts will be given to seniors in need at local senior care facilities. Wendy Flynn is the general manager of Home Instead, one of the participating organizations. She says it's an important way to combat seniors' loneliness this time of year. In the holidays, I think it's, you know, more magnified because most people are celebrating and seeing family and, and maybe it's, you know, they've lost their spouse and they no longer have a spark for the holiday. So we see a lot of it being a very difficult period for a lot of seniors. People can learn more at Home Instead's website. Bruins lost to the Rangers yesterday in overtime, 2-1 to the final score there. Celtics host the Magic this afternoon over at the Garden. The Patriots take on the Chiefs this afternoon at Gillette. It'll be mostly cloudy today. The highs will be around 55 degrees. Cloudy tonight, rain after 9 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us. The first Republican the first Republican primary contest is less than a month away, and former President Donald Trump has done it again. At a rally in New Hampshire yesterday, the Republican frontrunner used language that has experts in authoritarian rhetoric raising alarms. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, bipartisan talks continue on border security and funding for Ukraine. Joining us to discuss all this and more is NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hi, Tam. Good morning, Aisha. So let's start with these negotiations between a bipartisan group of senators and the White House. Fill us in on what's going on there. Yeah, so months ago, the White House asked Congress for a funding package that would include assistance to Ukraine and its war with Russia, border security funds, and and in, in that respect, it would be border agents, investigators to crack down on fentanyl trafficking, things like that. Then in October, they added, they added another ask for Israel aid. But congressional Republicans are insisting that there be immigration policy changes, too. So now the fate of urgently needed funding for Ukraine and Israel is resting on these bipartisan Senate talks. The House has actually already gone home for the holidays, but the Senate is sticking around 
at least through early next week. And negotiators came out of their meetings yesterday saying they were making slow progress, but hoped to possibly agree on a framework by the end of the day today. A White House spokesman said they were encouraged by the progress and believe they are moving in the right direction. Uh, already, though, immigrant advocates are expressing concerns about what the president could agree to, and Republicans are saying they don't think any bipartisan agreement will go far enough. Um, and, of course, Nothing is agreed to yet. Donald Trump visited New Hampshire yesterday as a part of his campaign to return to the White House. What did he say at the rally? What didn't he say? Um, he quoted and praised dictators. He said the January 6th rioters, many of whom have been convicted uh, or pled guilty to committing acts of violence, aren't prisoners but are hostages. And then he repeated it for emphasis. And he used a, used a phrase to describe immigrants coming into the U.S. that echoes language used by Hitler. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world, they're pouring into our country. And as is often the case with Trump, it's not entirely clear why he's talking about mental institutions and prisons. But the phrase poisoning the blood of our country is crystal clear, and it isn't an accident. He has said it before. When he did, it produced an uproar and rebukes, and then he said it again yesterday. Um, Trump also did deliver an economic message, arguing that the record high stock prices reached last week don't matter because it means rich people are getting richer. Um, it's a populist appeal, to be sure. Um, though when he was president, Trump boasted about stock prices all the time, uh, and he predicted a massive crash if Joe Biden were elected. Uh, Trump hasn't been spending much time in New Hampshire. So did he visit New Hampshire to head off Nikki Haley's momentum? Well, you, as you say, this is Trump's first time in the state in more than a month. And it was a big sports arena rally, not the sort of small Q&A format that is the norm for candidates in New Hampshire. Momentum is a relative term, though. Um, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley got a really big endorsement last week from the state's popular and anti-Trump governor, Chris Sununu. Um, they have been making the rounds on TV together and holding events with far fewer people than the Trump rally. Uh, Sununu's case is that it's, it's between Trump and Haley now. Um, but Trump is ahead by more than 20 points in an average of recent polls. In Iowa, which will go first, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was endorsed by the state's popular governor, Kim Reynolds, and Trump still has a massive lead in polls there. Um, but all those massive leads are also setting very high expectations for Trump. Uh, you know, the air of inevitability is a big part of his campaign, running like an incumbent. So he's ramping up campaigning. That's NPR's Tamara Keith. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Russia has been hit with huge economic sanctions since it invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago. But the Russian economy has remained strong, defying many economists' expectations. We wanted to understand why that's happened, so we called Alexandra Prokopenko, a fellow at Carnegie Eurasia Center. She used to live in Moscow and advised the Russian Central Bank, but left the country after the invasion because of moral objections to the war. 
we started by asking her what she was hearing from friends and family back home about how life has changed. Uh, life changed not so significantly as it was expected, but uh, they see the differences and feel the differences. However, uh, sanctions didn't play their role to immediately uh, put Russia on its knees, which was obvious at the beginning that it's not possible. So I, when people are talking about sanctions, I, uh, I always ask them to divide between sanctions narrative and sanctions regulation. In terms of regulation, sanctions are quite effective. In terms of narrative, well, it's failed. Mm. Well, 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 talk to me about that. Like, what is the sanctions narrative? Is that the idea that sanctions, you know, hurt the economy and kind of make the government uh, change its behavior? Is that the narrative? Uh, that's the one part of the narrative, that Russian economy will collapse immediately. I mean, what do we see now? Economic growth in Russia in 2023 is likely to exceed 3%. It is, in terms of figures, I mean, it's great. It's more than economy of the United Kingdom or of German's economy. So and what's behind these figures is that over a third of this growth is attributed to the war economy where defense related industries are flourishing at double digit rates this growth is not what we called you know uh, improving people's well-being it's more about the state spending on war so so how is russia paying for all of this extra military spending is it running a huge deficit no. So big part of this spending, Russia is paid by uh, uh, receiving um, revenues from China, India, uh, Turkey and other buyers of Russian oil products. And big part is so-called non-oil and gas income, which uh, economy produce itself. So the economy is working and it's creating taxes, government collecting taxes and paying with these taxes for the spending. And the third part, of course, there was a slight uh, devaluation of uh, ruble and uh, tolerance to inflation. Uh, so Russian inflation now is above the target of the central bank and probably it would be approximately 8% at the end of the year. And the target of the central bank is 4%. And uh, ruble lost, uh, I think, third of its value. You talked about how they're making money from selling oil, and of course, there, there, there is that price cap that um, you know the West and the U.S. heralded. Can you talk about that? And then, can you talk about how they're still making money off of the oil and gas industry? Because price cap and oil ban, which was imposed by G7 countries, wasn't enforced immediately, Russia had time to prepare and Russian businesses, they were able um, to establish a significant number of tankers uh, so to make logistical bridges to bring uh, the, the Russian oil to their new customers. It's not a secret that Russia using shadow fleet uh, which serves its oil export. There is also pipeline export uh, to China, 
and China is the largest uh, buyer of Russian oil. So all this combined, it's a big amount. I have to ask you about the labor force. Um, you know, half a million people have left Russia, many of them well-educated professionals like yourself. Does that have an impact on the economy? Um, partly. So labor shortages, it is a limitation for Russian growth because the amount of oil or gas which India or China can consume from Russia is limited. So that's why we're talking that that Russian economy is now operating on its maximum capacity. And I don't see any signs how it can grow uh, faster. Uh, and when we are looking at these bright figures about 3% of GDP growth or this super low unemployment rate, we will need always keep in mind what there is behind. And behind is Vladimir Putin impossible trilemma for 2024 because he will need to fund uh, the ongoing war against Ukraine, maintain the facade of business as usual for population and uh, safeguarding the macroeconomic stability which is quite complicated because Russia abandoned lots of institutions like budgetary rule or predictable tax system. So the situation looks solid, but it's very fragile. That's Alexandra Prokopinko from the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, the mood in China has certainly changed over the past year or so, from bold optimism to grudging acceptance. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we hear from several people there about the impact of political restrictions and an economic slowdown. Listen for that on your radio, on your phone, or on a smart speaker. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Sunday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown, 44 degrees in Boston at 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a group of current and former Alabama prisoners say they have been coerced into providing cheap labor to the state and to private employers. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. In Israel, pressure is mounting on the government there to do what it takes to secure the release of more than 100 hostages still held by Hamas. The foreign ministers of the U.K. and Germany are declaring there is an urgent need for a ceasefire in Gaza. The leaders expressed their shared view in a joint op-ed published by the London Sunday Times newspaper. 
Millions of people across Florida have been in the line of a significant drenching pre-holiday storm this weekend. The storm is currently moving up the Atlantic seaboard, expected to extend all the way up to Maine. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at MadeInCookware.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Olives and olive byproducts are vital revenue sources for Palestinian farmers in the West Bank. But some of the land owned by the farmers stands behind a barrier built by Israel 20 years ago. And the Israel-Hamas war has made access to that land even more difficult than usual. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley visited the West Bank to meet these olive farmers. We climb into the four-wheel drive of 35-year-old Taher El Taher, an olive farmer in the West Bank town of Betunia. He says he inherited his land from his grandfather, but he can't actually get to most of it. You see the fence over there? It's right here is the fence. He's talking about the barrier separating Israel from the West Bank. In urban areas, it's a 22-foot wall. Out here, it's a barbed wire electrified fence. And most of El Taher's land lies on the other side of it. Do you see the olive trees over there on the hill? All of this are lands of Betunia, the inaccessible lands. Israel built the barrier two decades ago against the backdrop of a Palestinian uprising known as the Second Intifada and the repeating suicide bombings taking place. The problem is the circuitous 440-mile barrier often strays into West Bank territory. You know, they think Jerusalem, even before this, is dangerous. I visit Israeli human rights advocate Jessica Montel at her office in East Jerusalem. She's executive director of an organization called Hamoked, or Hotline, which works to get Palestinians access to farmland cut off by the barrier. 20 years ago, when this route of the separation barrier was first revealed, the whole international community was up in arms. The Israeli government made a lot of promises that this would in no way disrupt people living alongside the route. But that's exactly what the barrier has done, she says. Palestinians are cut off from a little over 9% of their land. Farmers' lives now revolve around a system of permits and access schedules for when Israeli soldiers will open the barrier gates. Back on the hillside in Betunia, El Taher explains how farmers have to register for the olive harvest. You show up early in the morning at the gate, he says. Soldiers check your ID and you're allowed to get to your groves. 
He says no one passes if their name is not on the list and families are restricted to a certain number. He remembers going to that same land with his father when he was a boy before the barrier was built. In the morning we would check on the grapes, we would check on the olives, and in the afternoon we would go pick the figs. Life in Betunia was all focused on agriculture and we were able to go to our lands twice a day. Typically during olive harvest season, the gates are open each day from early morning to evening for about 40 days, says El Tahir. Hamoked Montel says this year there has been little to no access for farmers. Palestinians are not allowed to enter Israel since October 7th. And these farmers don't want to enter Israel. They want to enter lands inside the West Bank on the other side of the separation wall. A few days ago, Hamoked's petition to open the gates was rejected by Israel's Supreme Court. The government had argued that the restrictions on movement are a result of the unusual and complex security situation due to the war. It said the situation is being reviewed daily out of a desire to return to routine. The Israeli armed forces did not get back to NPR's request for comment. Montel says it's likely too late for Palestinian farmers. There's a small window to finish harvesting these groves. If they don't get access, they're going to lose a year's worth of income. Palestinian olive farmers are also facing increased harassment from Israeli settlers. In this video put out by Israeli human rights group Salam, an aging Palestinian olive farmer shows hundreds of newly planted trees he says were chopped down by settlers. But Selim says settlers are exploiting the climate of fear in Israel to further their own political agenda. National Public Radio, Radio We go to meet Mohammed Alwan, deputy head of the Palestinian Farmers Union in Ramallah. A poster in his office reads, They uproot one tree, we plant ten. Olives and olive trees are a cultural symbol. They consolidate Palestinian existence on the land, both symbolically and realistically. Orwan says from 50 to 90 percent of farmers' earnings in this area come from olives. Our last stop is a local olive cooperative where we see how an olive press works. So the olives come up on this conveyor belt. There's olive leaves all over the floor, but he's just running in for us for some sound because there are no olives to press right now. Press owner Saad Awad says only those who live far from the separation barrier and Jewish settlements have been able to pick their olives. Around here, he says, thousands of acres have gone to waste and many Palestinian farmers will go bankrupt. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Betunia, the West Bank. There was a big eruption just a few days ago on the sun, a powerful solar flare launching particles that reached the Earth just eight minutes later and disrupting radio signals in Central and South America. To learn more about it, we're joined by India Jackson. She studies the sun and space weather and is an astrophysics PhD candidate at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. 
what exactly is a solar flare? Like what's going on with the sun when that happens? Inside of the sun, there are a lot of physical processes going on. So we have magnetic reconnection, particles slamming into each other, and that can cause X-rays, gamma rays to spit out, and radiation and solar energetic particles to be released from the sun. And then how often does that happen? Does that just happen every day, every, you know, or I don't know, the sun's (laughs) on a different time scale? I mean, well, we can have solar activity every day, but we do have solar cycles. We have solar minimums and solar maximum. Solar minimum is just basically kind of like when the sun is quiet. So it's not too much going on, but solar maximum is where the sun is just extremely active. So we have a lot of flares and with that comes the radiation and the blackout that we got a couple days ago. Oh, so so what do those particles do? The radiation and all that stuff, what, what does it do? They are called solar energetic particles. They are high energy and it can damage like human DNA at a low scale. It can cause damage to some of our satellites and have them stop working because it's such high energy and it's so hot. And with space weather prediction, which is what I do, we try to forecast when those things will happen because what we don't want is for something catastrophic to occur, uh, like, you know, destroying our power grids. Do we have any way to prevent that? Oh God, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we cannot prevent We cannot prevent the sun from doing what she gonna do. Okay. But what we can do is try to forecast what's gonna happen and to try to protect ourselves, our astronauts, and our technology. And so with the radiation, and I know you said it can affect uh, human DNA. Like, is there anything to be done to avoid that? Or, you know, because that, that's... Sunscreen. Sunscreen. Oh, <laughs> okay. So that prevents that too? So wear the sunscreen? I mean, well, it ain't going to prevent too much of nothing. But, you know, sunscreen protects you from those UV rays. Oh. And, um... You should wear it anyway, but... Um. <laughs> but it could help a bit with some of the rays coming from these solar flares. Yes. That's astrophysicist India Jackson telling us all about last week's solar flare. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. A group of Alabama prisoners are suing the state for prison labor practices they say amount to a modern-day form of slavery. These men and women say they have been forced to work for little or no pay for the benefit of the government and private businesses. And this is allegedly happening in a state that changed its constitution to outlaw forced labor. NPR criminal justice reporter Meg Anderson is here to explain more. Hi, Meg. Hi, Aisha. So who are the people who are suing and what are they saying? Yeah, so first I feel like I should note this is not just an Alabama issue. Working in prison is common and most prisoners who work say it's required of them. In this lawsuit, though, there are 14 plaintiffs in all and 10 of them are current and former prisoners who worked while they were in Alabama's prisons. 
they're all Black, and they emphasize that in the lawsuit, saying it really underscores the disproportionate number of Black people held in the state's prisons. They say that if they refused to work, they risked being punished with things like solitary confinement, being deprived of food, and the loss of good time credits, which can lower a person's overall time behind bars. Lakira Walker is one of those plaintiffs. She was in prison for about 15 years and got out earlier this year. And she says she faced sexual harassment while doing road work, but was disciplined when she refused to go to work because of it. And here she is in a recorded statement from her lawyers. I'm out, but my heart is still there with my friends and family who have to go through it. They can say that, you know, oh, it's not like that, and oh, we don't force labor, and oh, it's okay, but you have so many women on the inside now that are afraid to speak out. She and the other plaintiffs also say that the state's prisons are so violent that going to work is basically the only escape, and that makes any job inherently coercive. So who are the defendants in the lawsuit? They're suing more than two dozen people and entities, including Alabama Governor Kay Ivey and the state's attorney general, Steve Marshall. They're also suing leaders from the Department of Corrections, the Board of Pardons and Paroles. And they're suing several private companies, including a few franchisees of pretty well-known businesses, McDonald's, KFC, Burger King, and Wendy's. They all contract with the state as part of a work release program where prisoners are employed in the community. The Alabama Department of Corrections told me it can't comment on an ongoing lawsuit, and most of the other defendants either wouldn't comment on the record or couldn't be reached. But the lawsuit accuses them, among other things, of violating the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. That's a federal law that bans forced labor. And also of violating Alabama's state constitution, which was amended last year to ban all forms of slavery. I mean, that may sound strange to people who would think that uh, slavery has been outlawed for a while in the U.S. So can you explain about Alabama's state constitution being changed to ban slavery just last year? Yeah, so it was a ballot measure in Alabama in November of last year, and that amendment was actually part of a larger movement to ban forced labor in prisons across the country. 16 state constitutions and the U.S. Constitution ban slavery, except as punishment for a crime. And in the last five years, seven states have changed their constitution to get rid of that language, which some prisoner advocates say is is a loophole. That includes Alabama and Colorado, where prisoners have filed a similar lawsuit. Lawyers for the Alabama plaintiffs have been following that case closely. B.J. Chisholm, she's one of the Alabama lawyers. She says Alabama stands out because there are a lot of employers named in the lawsuit. But I think hopefully this lawsuit will be a warning to other states about the violations of federal law. Beyond this lawsuit, what else are you hearing about the impacts of this kind of prison labor? Yeah, so prisoners and advocates say that there are very real human costs, right? Forcing people to work when they're sick or feeling unsafe. And then there are also economic ones. Prisoners in pretty much every prison in the country are paid very little, sometimes nothing at all. 
Most prison jobs exist to maintain the prisons themselves. People work as janitors, groundskeepers, cooks. And using that labor makes maintaining prisons a lot cheaper than if you had to bring in outside labor and pay them at least minimum wage to do the same job. So some prisoner advocates say that having that cheap labor force actually incentivizes a system that keeps more people in prison longer. That's NPR's Meg Anderson. Thanks so much for your reporting, Meg. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The government of Nicaragua has become increasingly authoritarian. Over the past year, they've exiled political opponents, poets, and journalists who the government considers a threat. Now it has a new target, the winner of this year's Miss Universe pageant. NPR's Ada Peralta explains how the government came to see a joyous occasion as something subversive. This was the moment that made Nicaragua erupt okay. into revelry. The new Miss Universe is Nicaragua! On stage, 23-year-old Shanice Palacios got her crown. She cried, she waved, she disappeared into the arms of her fellow beauty queens. And in Nicaragua, something happened that had not happened in a long time. On the streets, there was only happiness. People took to the streets. We hadn't seen anything like that since the big protests in 2018. We saw police trucks, but they didn't do anything to us. Everyone danced. Everyone drank beer. You could say, Viva Shanies. You could chant another name that wasn't Daniel or Rosario. That's Luis, Roberto, and Rosa, three young Nicaraguans who took to the streets that day. They asked we only use their first names because since 2018, the government has punished any critical speech. It's been that way in Nicaragua since the government cracked down on huge anti-government demonstrations. Police killed hundreds of protesters, and the government of President Daniel Ortega, who has been in power off and on for nearly 30 years, jailed or exiled nearly all his critics, everyone from singers to poets to a prominent Catholic bishop. But that day, when Shanice Palacios became the first Central American to win Miss Universe, Nicaragua felt different, says Rosa. We felt freedom. You could carry your flag. You could scream for joy. Even the government issued a statement congratulating Palacios. But that didn't last. Quickly, the government learned that Palacios had joined the protest as a college student in 2018. And Vice President Rosario Murillo switched tacks. Vemos el aprovechamiento grosero. We see this as a brute attempt, she says, an evil terrorist plot to turn something beautiful into a destructive coup attempt. The director of Miss Universe Nicaragua was denied entry into her own country and then charged with sedition for, quote, trying to turn beauty pageants into political ambushes and using them to, quote, incite hate, violence and organized crime. This week, the director resigned. Elvira Cuadra has studied the Nicaraguan security apparatus for decades. There's a rationale behind this, she says, because President Daniel Ortega, who is 78, is planning for succession. His wife, Rosario Murillo, who is now his vice president, and his children have taken over important matters of state. None of them have the revolutionary creds he does. And Ortega knows there is vast discontent and little respect for his wife and kids, Cuadra says. So any little public demonstration 
puede aflorar en can easily bloom into something else. As for the celebrations, they ended as quickly as they started. Rosa says at the time it felt like something was about to change in Nicaragua. In the least, she says, she thought Shaney's Palacios would come back home victorious to adoring masses. We now know it'll be the first and last time we'll celebrate as long as this government is in power. Now, she says, it's not even clear that Miss Universe will even be allowed to enter her own country. Peter Peralta, Air News, Mexico City. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The National Weather Service is warning of some potentially damaging winds starting tomorrow. Much of eastern Massachusetts will be under a high wind warning from 5 in the morning tomorrow through the evening. Some areas could face wind gusts of up to 65 miles an hour and could experience downed trees and power lines. The National Weather Service is advising people to avoid being outside in forested areas during that time. Commuter rail service returns to Lynn tomorrow. The MBTA and commuter rail operator Keolis say that is nine months ahead of schedule. Service is scheduled to run between Lynn Station and North Station about every half hour during the week and hourly on weekends. Lynn Station was closed back in October of 2022 because of safety concerns. Bruins lost to the Rangers yesterday in overtime, 2-1 the final score in that game. Mostly cloudy today. The highs will be around 55 degrees. Cloudy tonight. Rain after 9 o'clock. Lows will be around 50 degrees. Rainy and windy tomorrow. Lows in the 60s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. WVUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times, and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? 
Yes, it came from listener Steve Baggish of Arlington, Massachusetts. I said, take the phrase winter season, add a letter of your choosing, then rearrange all 13 letters to spell three related words. What are they? Well, you add an L and you can rearrange the result to spell snow, sleet, and rain. I don't know how the weather is where you are, Aisha, but we get a lot of that in New York around now. Okay, we got a little bit of snow earlier this week, my kids. It was just a dusting, but my daughter did say this was her Christmas wish and it came true. <laughs> so, so, yes. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Everybody did an amazing job with this one. There were nearly 1,000 correct entries and Crystal Van Artstalen of Gloucester, Massachusetts is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Crystal. Thank you so much, Aisha. So, Crystal, how long have you been playing the puzzle? Uh, I've been playing for about a year and a half, but honestly, this was the very first one that I sent in. I usually don't send them in when I get them, but I was inspired to this time. <laughs> I look at you, <laughs> lucky you. So let, we're going to hope some of that luck can rub off on us. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Uh, well, I am a scenic artist, so I help to create worlds, honestly, for uh, theater and film. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that is, that's a really cool job. And so now you're going to create a world with this puzzle where you're going to do really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Crystal, are you ready to play the puzzle? Yes, I am. Okay, take it away, Will. All right, Crystal and Aisha, every answer today is a familiar two-word phrase or name with the initials S-N. For example, if I said another name for Santa Claus, you would say St. Nicholas. So here we go. Number one, words before live in the title of a long-running TV show. Saturday night. That's it. What sleeping in an awkward position might leave you with. Oh, a sore neck. <laughs> uh -huh, or a stiff neck, either way. Uh, a chemical compound with the formula AgNO3. Uh, sodium nitrate. Oh, there is sodium nitrate, but what's Ag? Oh, silver, silver. Silver nitrate is it. You got silver it. Nitrate. Pseudonym for a performer. Stage name. You got it. Flattering words whispered into a lover's ear. Oh, uh, sweet nothings. <laughs> yes. A unique combination of digits and letters on a banknote. Um, on a banknote. You know, oh, like a serial a, number. A serial number serial is it. Number. Mountain range in Eastern California. Uh, the Sierra Nevadas. That's it. Observation Tower in Seattle. Oh, the Space Needle. That's it. Item with a ring binding that a student writes in in class. Uh, a study notebook. Yeah, but it's got a ring binding, so what would you call it? Oh, what spiral kind of notebook. Spiral notebook, is it? A post-it. A sticky note. That's it. 23 times 3. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, 69. 69, is it? An acquired <laughs> habit that's so deeply ingrained as to appear automatic. Uh, second nature. You got it. Here's your last one. Christmas Carol with the lyric, all is calm, all is bright. Oh, 
Silent Night. That's it. <laughs> oh my goodness! Wow, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> you killed it, Crystal. I you didn't need any help at all. You even did the math. I was like, well, I, ain't supposed to be no math in here. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I panicked right away. I was like, oh, no, not math. <laughs> <laughs> you did an amazing job. How do you feel? Oh, so this was so fun. I'm so grateful to be on. So this was this was just great. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Crystal, what member station do you listen to? I listen to WBUR out of Boston. Oh, awesome. That's Crystal Van Artstalen of Gloucester, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you both so much. Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Samantha Robeson of Eugene, Oregon. Think of a word that means required. Rearrange its letters to name two school subjects, one of which is often required and one of which often isn't. What are they? So again, think of a word that means required and rearrange its letters to name two school subjects, one of which is often required and one of which often isn't. What subjects are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, December 21st at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. about holiday music, and I definitely am one of them. Everyone has opinions, lots of opinions. Mine are all correct, but we decided <laughs> to ring in the season with a challenge, a holiday music throwdown between me and a special guest, Weekend Edition Saturday host Scott Simon. Welcome to Sunday. It's very good to be with you, Aisha, in, this, in the spirit of the holiday. I'm so glad we can get together in an atmosphere of amity and mutual respect. <laughs> and, and, and somebody else is here, and right? And someone else is here. Either that or Scott Detrow is just lurking. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just creeping in the corner of the studio. We, I, do you need me? We need a referee. Oh, glad to so, be here. So, yes. All right, so I've got a list of questions here. The, the question I have, here's a, a song that you must sing along with loud and proud, no matter where you are, and it is written here for me to say, you are required to sing your response. <laughs> Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. That's good. Yuletide yeah, carols that... being sung by a choir. What is, it's, what... it, and it's, I should say, everything traces through Chicago. This is a song with the fingerprints of two great Southside Chicagoans. It's written mm. by Mel Torme and, of course, and originally recorded by Nat King Cole. So mine, nobody wants to hear me sing, but I will sing a little bit of it. Yeah. What do they do? What do they do at Christmas? I think that's beautiful. <laughs> what do they do? What do they do? because that's the way the emotions sing it. They're like, how can I be happy when I have nobody? <laughs> this 
this is a draw because you both brought such passion but and okay, and spirit so to it. Okay, uh, and I enjoyed hearing both of you sing. <laughs> what is a song that's just got to be played in your house? Because your kids love it, not necessarily because you love it. And I ask this, having driven to school this morning, listening to a version of Jingle Bells in which it wasn't lyrics, but rather farts. <laughs> Scott, uh, what's, uh, what's a... Feliz Navidad. Yeah. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Prospero año y felicidad. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> I want to wish you... Look, see, they're moving in the control room. But uh, yes, I'm sorry. So mine is one that I I really like, but my kids love it and have to listen to it all the time. And my daughter, my middle child, she goes, all I want for Christmas is you. And then she goes, Mommy, how did that? Don't I sound just like her? Oh. And I say, Yes, you do. You do sound just That's like a her. Point, Aisha. <laughs> yeah, 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 even I agree with that. Uh, what is a song that makes you weepy or nostalgic at Christmas time, Aisha? So, my weepy and nostalgic song is White Christmas by Otis Redding. In me, oh, oh. All of your Christmas hair And me all And me all Of your Christmas hair your days May your days Be merry Merry So merry The way he sings that song It's like a gospel song it's like he is wishing, he, like, he has all this love in his heart, and the way he's wishing to give that to the person, he's saying, I want you to have a white Christmas. I'm about to cry now. It's beautiful. It beautiful. It, it's a gospel song. It really feels like a gospel song. What about you, Scott? Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Yeah. Judy Garland version, Judy, 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 when she gets to the line. Someday soon we all will be together If the fates allow Ah, if the fates allow. I think of my mother, my late mother. I think of my late mother-in-law. I think of kids I grew up with. Yeah. (sighs) My Auntie Chris, my Auntie Abba, their memories are still part of our lives. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to give that point to Scott. And I yeah. think you both, uh, I can hear both of those songs and the way that you hear them. And I understand how they register. Yeah. And I also love them both. Okay. This, this is a tone shift, but I'm very curious to hear <laughs> the answers to this one. A song that you never want to hear again. Ah. What? what is this Christmas song? You're just, nope. Can't do it. Uh, Scott, what so, are, you yeah, go first. You're, you're first. Um, grandma got run over by a reindeer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't want to hear that ever again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not a bad tune, but I find the lyrics unfair to Santa. So the one that I don't want to hear anymore, and it's not that I don't want to hear it anymore. We're going to get letters. Listen, it's just not my 
cup of tea, but I'm going to be honest because it's the Christmas season. Jesus, I love Mary, but I don't I don't want it. I don't want that song. You know what? <laughs> you know what? I just want Sister Geraldine and everybody else listening who helped educate me to know that I'm giving Scott this point because Ave Maria is a beautiful song I can never hear enough of. Nothing bad about it coming from me. Okay. Oh well. my gosh, she's been turned into a filler song. <laughs> Moment of truth here. What is your all-time favorite holiday song? Aisha. This is easy. My all-time favorite holiday song because I know it is the best Christmas song ever made. And that is This Christmas by Donny Hathaway. How you make a love song to Christmas, that's what Donny Hathaway did. The best song ever. I, I don't know what you're going to say. If it's not This Christmas, you're wrong. Hang all the mistletoe, I'm going to get to know you better. Christmas and as we trim the tree how much fun it's gonna be together this Christmas even I'm singing along yeah and then we're gonna carol through the night caroling through the night and this Christmas will be it's gonna be a very special Christmas for you and me that's it's it. only it's only gonna be a special Christmas <laughs> for Scott Simon, uh, d- depending on the strength of this last answer. Yeah, so what I know. is this? What all is time. this? Against all expectation, and I think it's I think it's the most artful Christmas song ever. Tim Minchin, best known as the composer of Matilda, the musical. Mm-hmm. Tim is an outspoken atheist, and the most wonderful song that he wrote when he was spending his first winter in London, and his infant daughter had been born. And he was thinking of his family in Australia, where it's summer. They'll be drinking white wine in the sun. And I'm going to get a little overcome because he sings to his daughter. And you won't understand, but you will learn someday that wherever you are and whatever you face, these are the people who make you feel safe in this world. Wherever you are and whatever you face, these are the people who make you feel safe in this world. Oh, that's, I'm sorry. That's beautiful. I'm sorry. That's I beautiful. just, I, I. That's beautiful. I think it's the most. Yeah. And that's what the holidays and humanity yeah. are all about. You yeah. know what? This is a little. This is a little Hallmark movie in in one radio segment right here because yeah. we started. We yes. started with Aisha's yes. competition and confrontation, <laughs> but I have been won over by the spirit of love here, yeah. and I love all these Christmas songs. And Christmas is the winner. The Christmas season is Christmas, the winner. Oh, there's no winner. That's true. My That's my true. heart is growing three sizes <laughs> as we speak. I need to move back from the microphone. Your buttons are popping. <laughs> for teaching us all the meaning of Christmas, the true meaning, and also being the host of All Things Considered. Both of the Scots, thanks both of you for joining us. Both Scots were happy to be here. Both Scots were happy to be here.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR this Sunday morning. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 9 o'clock as weekend con- edition continues, we'll hear from a Fort Worth OBGYN about the medical emergency exception in Texas's abortion ban. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com And Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org On last week's Wait, Wait, Luke Burbank explained why he loves office holiday parties. Let's take a bunch of people who are very stressed out and people are mostly not saying what they want to say for 60 to 80 hours a week, and then let's apply a river of alcohol to the situation. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. We're having a holiday gathering this week at Carnegie Hall, and it is mandatory. So join us for this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. In this hour, we talk with a Texas physician about the fight over medical exceptions to the state's abortion ban. I think the one thing that people really need to remember is that pregnancy itself is not a health-neutral situation. And the UK's Prime Minister is pushing a plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Find out more. Plus, you may know him from How I Met Your Mother, but now actor Josh Radner is out with his first album, Eulogy, Volume 1. It's Sunday, December 17th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Schiavone. Israeli forces have withdrawn after four days of a siege on a hospital in northern Gaza. The raid happened in the midst of a prolonged communications blackout in Gaza, making details hard to come by. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf has the latest from Tel Aviv. In videos and initial media reports shared with the UN and other organizations, an Israeli military bulldozer appears to flatten tents where displaced people had been seeking refuge outside the Kamel Adwin Hospital in Gaza City. People seem to have been in the tents and dead bodies lay crushed among the wreckage. 
The Israeli military released a statement on the raid claiming the hospital had been, quote, used by Hamas as a major command center and that scores had been detained. The statement said troops had questioned workers who had confessed that weapons were hidden in incubators for premature babies, which were then searched and seized. Telecommunications and Internet have been out in Gaza since midday December 14th, one of the longest blackouts since October 7th. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Tel Aviv. In Florida, a meeting is set for today that may determine the future of the head of the state's Republican Party. NPR's Greg Allen reports Republican Party leaders are considering whether to remove the chairman who is being investigated for rape. Sarasota police are investigating allegations that Florida Republican Party Chairman Christian Ziegler sexually assaulted and raped a woman. In a police affidavit, the unnamed woman says she agreed to a sexual encounter with him and his wife Bridget, a well-known conservative activist. When she learned Bridget wouldn't be there, the woman says she canceled, but Christian Ziegler showed up anyway, came into her home, and raped her. Ziegler told police the sex was consensual. The executive committee of Florida's GOP is meeting today in Orlando to vote on whether he should continue as party chair. Republicans, including Governor Ron DeSantis, have called on Ziegler to quit while he's under investigation, but so far he's refused. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Lots of rain is due along the eastern seaboard as the week begins. Millions in Florida have already experienced the drenching rain now headed for the Middle Atlantic and New England states. Forecaster Zach Taylor at the National Weather Service says snow is also in the national forecast. For portions of the Great Lakes, generally between four to six inches um, of snow over the next several days, But for portions of West Virginia and and some of the terrain areas of West Virginia, Western Maryland, and even portions of South Central Pennsylvania, uh, we're looking at potentially as high as 8 to 12 inches. The heavy weather on the East Coast is expected to last into Monday morning. Quaker Oats is recalling several of its granola products due to potential salmonella contamination. Customers are being told to toss out certain types of granola bars and cereals to avoid infection. Customers are asked to consult the company website for further information and for reimbursement. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. This weekend marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party and the city is celebrating. Thousands of people chanted at Boston Harbor as actors recreated the historical night. Throwing crates of tea into the ocean was the culmination of a day of celebration in the city. Earlier, thousands marched from the Old South Meeting House, where Bostonians had gathered to challenge British policies on that day in 1773. Sean O'Brien played John Hancock at the reenactment. I like the fact that it gives people the chance to identify with a moment in time in a way that they otherwise might not have. They can speak to someone, they can talk to someone, they can get a sense of what it might have looked like, felt like, uh, just been like to have been in a place like this. The city will wrap up anniversary celebrations today with events including special programming at Fennel Hall this afternoon. A 50-year-old man has been arrested after police say he stole $30,000 worth of items from a Newbury Street shop. Wayne O'Keefe of Braintree allegedly stole handbags and other designer items from the Valentino store early Monday morning. He'll be in court tomorrow. Commuter rail service returns to Lynn tomorrow. The MBTA and commuter rail operator Keolis say it is nine months ahead of schedule. Service is scheduled to run between Lynn Station and North Station about every half hour during the week. And hourly on weekends, Lynn Station was closed in October 2022 because of safety concerns. 
Lowell Congresswoman Lori Trahan is applauding a decision by the Metropolitan Museum of Art to return artworks to Thailand and Cambodia. The 16 artworks were from the Khmer area around the 11th to 13th centuries. Trahan said the art is back where it belongs. Trahan is chair of the Congressional Cambodia Caucus and leads a district with one of the largest Cambodian populations in the United States. Bruins lost to the Rangers yesterday in overtime, 2-1 to the final score there. Mostly cloudy today. Highs will be around 55 degrees. Cloudy tonight with rain after 9 o'clock. The lows around 50. Rainy and windy tomorrow. Highs in the low 60s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. A deeply personal and painful story has been at the center of a legal and political battle in recent days. A 31-year-old mom was denied a medical exception to the Texas abortion ban. Kate Cox has sued for abortion access after her fetus was diagnosed with a genetic condition that's almost always fatal. Before the Texas Supreme Court ruled, Cox left to obtain an abortion out of state. To understand the medical implications of a case like this, we reached out to Dr. Andrea Palmer, an OBGYN in Fort Worth, Texas. When I have a a patient who is uh, in the same or similar situation, you know, we talk about the risks of pregnancy termination versus the risks of carrying a pregnancy to term. And when you compare the two, um, the benefit for mom's health um, almost always is going to lie on the side of terminating the pregnancy. And why is that for people who may not understand or who may not be familiar, which is a lot of people? Sure. And I think that's, you know, part of the problem when we talk about abortion and and pregnancy termination. Um, I think the one thing that people really need to remember is that pregnancy itself is not a health neutral situation. Women die in childbirth and after childbirth. Um, You know, in the United States, we don't boast a a particularly um, healthy maternal mortality rate. And so we have risks of things like hemorrhage, um, catastrophic events like amniotic fluid embolism, hypertensive um, uh, disorders like preeclampsia and eclampsia that can lead to seizures, strokes, and death. So when we talk specifically about patients like Ms. Cox who have a history of prior C-sections, um, a repeat cesarean section comes with a certain amount of required blood loss and risk to mom. And then when we talk about repeat C-sections, number four for her, if she were to go on and have another pregnancy, number four, as far as our C-section goes statistically, is where the risk really starts to 
increase for mom with each pregnancy that she might have a placental abnormality, something that we would call a placenta accreta, where the placenta kind of is, invades into the muscle or beyond of the uterus instead of just attaching to the lining. And that can be a very dangerous uh, situation. And that risk increases with every cesarean section. So asking a woman to carry a fetus to term that is not going to live to survive much after the C-section she's going to be required to have to deliver it is just putting her at risk for every pregnancy thereafter. Well, as an OBGYN in Texas, um, are you and the colleagues you, you speak with clear on what constitutes a medical emergency under the Texas abortion ban? Yeah, a medical emergency is a pretty nebulous designation. Um, I can tell you when somebody's actively dying right in front of my face, <laughs> we, you know, we see, um, we see that happen. But but everything is a risk, right? So it's really hard to draw the line. Um, you know, I think the problem with trying to legislate medical care is that there are so many nuances. There are so many situations that you can't write a law for every scenario that might happen. That's why taking the decisions out of the hands of the patient and the physician is just really dangerous and scary. Are you afraid to make these sorts of decisions? Like, if, does the fear of prosecution factor into some of the choices that you make? You know, when, when SB8 first passed in Texas, I think a lot of us got scared to almost even have conversations with our patients because the way that law was originally written and presented and passed is that we could be sued personally for even for aiding and abetting. So even having a conversation to talk with the patient about how they could access an abortion outside of the state of Texas or within the state of Texas. And so I, I definitely know that some of my colleagues wouldn't talk to patients about terminating pregnancy. Um, I personally didn't change my counseling, but I also have a, a you know, a, a deep trusting relationship with my patients that um, I was just betting on the fact that they trusted that I was giving them accurate and, and honest medical advice. Have you considered not practicing in Texas? Oh, I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think that, um, you know, being able to offer full spectrum obstetric care is definitely, has absolutely driven some people out of the state. I think more than anything, it's a big barrier for physicians coming into our state, for physicians coming in to train in our state. Um, you know, for somebody who's starting their OBGYN residency to go to a place where they're not going to get any education on family planning and, and abortion care is really um, a deterrent. The population that is going to be around to care for our women in the next 10 to 15 years is going to look very different than it would have had these laws not changed. That's Dr. Andrea Palmer. She is an OBGYN in Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome. Thank you for shining light on our struggle down here.
Egyptian officials still haven't announced who won last week's election, but incumbent President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi is widely expected to win a third term. The Middle East's most populous nation is in the midst of an economic crisis, but NPR correspondent Aya Batrawi reports the war in Gaza to the north is on voters' minds, too. Patriotic songs blared from loudspeakers as voters filed into a polling station in Cairo this week. The music is upbeat, but the crises facing Egypt are grave. And Rem Hassanin believes voting is a privilege and a duty, and says she's voting for President Abdel Fattah Hassisi for another six-year term because she believes he can protect Egypt's national security. Some voters chanted Tahya Masr, or Long Live Egypt, while waiting to cast their ballots. Others erupted with another nationalistic slogan. Sinai is a red line. The chants reflect one of the key issues on voters' minds, security. Egyptians are concerned that two million Palestinians in neighboring Gaza could be pushed into Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, a territory Egypt and Israel fought repeated wars over. The UN warns that hunger, disease and Israeli airstrikes, including in areas near Egypt's border, could lead to a breakdown in public order in the Gaza Strip. And al-Sisi and Egypt's military and the public reject any notion that Sinai be drawn into the war or that there be any permanent displacement of Palestinians from their land. Hassanin says she respects el-Sisi and his government's stance defending the Palestinians and their cause and how he has put Egypt's interests first by rejecting this scenario. Abdel Hamid al-Gabali says he's voting for el-Sisi because Egyptians sacrificed with their blood for Sinai and will never give up an inch of territory. We stand with the president, and we tell him that all of the Egyptian public stands with you in anything you ask of us. But for Israel's invasion to push Palestinians into Egypt? No. Sinai is a red line. The election was stacked in el-Sisi's favor. In a country with widespread illiteracy among Egypt's poor, his logo on the ballot was literally the star. The other three all-male candidates vetted and approved to run against him aren't really household names and stood little chance of unseating him. But there's growing frustration over the president's handling of the economy. Egypt's currency has plummeted to historical lows on the black market. His government's expected to devalue the currency soon after the election to bring the official rate closer in line with the black market, a move that was put off for months in the run-up to the voting. Inflation is at record highs. Millions of Egyptians can no longer afford cooking oil, lentils, milk, eggs, and other basics. Hala Hassan says not long ago, the economy was all anyone was talking about, and people wanted to see change. But as she waited to cast her ballot, she says now all anyone in Egypt talks about is the country's border security. God help us, she says. Another voter, Jihan Mohammed, didn't say who she's voting for, but says Egypt's politicians need to look at the country's poor, who she says are rummaging through garbage to find their next meal. She says before Egypt sends its aid to others outside the country, they need to look at Egypt's poor and do something for them. She was likely referring here to the thousands of tons of aid Egypt has sent to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip during this war to stave off the crisis unfurling at its border. 
It's hard to know exactly where El Sisi's popularity stands among the public in a country with scarce independent opinion polling and where thousands are languishing in prisons for opposing him or his policies. In the lead-up to this election, Hisham Assam, a prominent independent journalist and spokesperson for a liberal coalition group, was sentenced to six months in prison on charges related to speech. There were others too, economists and online critics of El Sisi, who were detained or silenced ahead of the elections. El Sisi is a former military general who has led Egypt for the past decade with an emphasis on security over democracy. And it's clear from the elections he's got more time to carry that out. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. NPR producer Ahmed Abu Hamda reported from Cairo for this story. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. 45 degrees in Boston at 918. Coming up in about five minutes on WBUR, NPR staffers recommend nonfiction reads from our Books We Love list. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Mostly cloudy today. Highs will be around 55 degrees. Cloudy tonight. Rain comes in after 9 o'clock. The lows will be around 50 degrees. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Israelis continue to gather in Tel Aviv to press the government to secure a new swap deal for the release of more than 100 hostages still held by Hamas. This after Israeli troops mistakenly killed three hostages in northern Gaza. The foreign ministers of Britain and Germany have made a joint statement calling for a sustainable ceasefire in Gaza, pressing Israel to do more to save civilian lives. Christmas observances will be significantly muted this month in Bethlehem. The tree and lights will not be set up amid the somber events unfolding since October. Midnight Mass will be celebrated in the Church of the Nativity. I'm Louise Givoni, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Immigration is hardening political divisions on both sides of the Atlantic. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak 
held off a rebellion in his conservative party last week for now. He's trying to push through a controversial policy that would allow the British government to send asylum seekers to Rwanda for processing. The government's already spent over $300 million, but Rwanda has yet to receive a single asylum seeker after the policy was blocked by the British courts. Robert Shrimsley is following this for the Financial Times newspaper, where he's a political commentator and executive editor. Welcome to the program. Hello, Aisha. So what are the origins of this policy? Okay, so it dates back, I think, to a problem that began to spring up just around the time of the pandemic, when the numbers of asylum seekers crossing the English Channel from France to come into Britain began to rise quite substantially. I mean, we're talking numbers now of around 45,000 a year. And it became a big political issue for the Conservatives because the party to the right of them, which used to be known as the Brexit Party, led by Nigel Farage, started to make a bigger and bigger issue of this. And since one of the core points of Brexit was that the country would take back control of immigration, this was being used as a hammer against the Conservatives to say, well, they're not taking control of immigration. And that's been the origins of the policy. But it's been very, very difficult for them to bring it to fruition. And logistically and financially, does it make sense to try to send asylum seekers to Rwanda? We don't know. It's the simple answer because none have been sent. I mean, more home secretaries have visited Rwanda than asylum seekers at the moment. But it's never going to be large numbers. We're talking about hundreds rather than thousands. So the entire premise is that once people see that this is what's going to happen, they won't try and come. They'll stay in France or go somewhere else or whatever. So it's all predicated on a deterrent effect. Financially, well... I don't think it's the most cost-effective thing, but it could be cost-effective if it really worked as a deterrent. The problem is most people don't think it will work as a deterrent. And since the kind of people who are coming to Britain in small boats are frequently risking their lives to get to the UK, it's not at all clear that they would regard this deterrent as sufficiently terrible to put them off. Quite a few British prime ministers have been pushed out in recent years. Is Sunak risking his future on this issue? Well, probably not, because we're only about a year away from a general election now anyway. And although there are people who would like to get rid of him within the Conservative Party, there isn't an obvious replacement. So realistically, I don't think that he will be pushed out before an election, but he's in a lot of trouble anyway. And the odds would be that he would lose the election when it comes, which is why so many people are rebelling against him. And one of the reasons he's having difficulty is because he's not succeeding on getting a grip on immigration. It's one of the issues Conservatives have talked up, and yet actually their record has not been very good. So he's got his own problems regardless of whether his party push him out. Immigration is obviously a big issue here in the U.S. Do you see any parallels with what's playing out in the U.K.? I think there are parallels across the Western world, actually. In the U.S., in parts of mainland Europe, you've seen in the Netherlands, you've seen in Italy, election successes for leaders who put immigration at the centre of their political campaign. Obviously, we're also watching Marine Le Pen in France. And I think what you're seeing is a reconfiguring of the parties of the centre-right and of the conservative right, who are beginning to make immigration and what I would call nativism a bigger part of their campaign pitch. And they believe this is going to grow and grow. And obviously, at the extreme end, at the far right end, you have people talking great replacement theories. But even in what we consider to be mainstream political parties, you are having people begin to talk about the problems of multiculturalism and the issues of too many people coming in. And so I think what we are seeing is an attempt to reconfigure the British Conservative Party 
in the way that others have done to make immigration one of the absolute defining issues for them. That's Robert Shrimsley. He is executive editor of the Financial Times. Thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure. Are you looking for a great read for your next book club meeting? A surefire holiday gift idea? Or maybe something so fascinating and thought-provoking that you don't want to leave your chair? Books We Love, NPR's list of best reads from the year, has hundreds of recommendations, which we know is a lot. Luckily, we can help narrow it down. Today, here are some nonfiction suggestions from a few of our colleagues. Hey, I'm Nell Greenfield-Boyce. I'm a science correspondent for NPR. And the book I loved this year was by journalist David Gran, and it's called The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. Now, that sounds like a lot of spoilers. You know, it's going to have a shipwreck, a mutiny, and a murder. But believe me, there is nothing predictable about this book. It's the story of an 18th century British naval mission that goes seriously awry. And as a piece of nonfiction reporting, this is amazing. The book is so full of all kinds of incredible detail that really put you there in the moment. You know, what these sailors go through is almost unbelievable, but it's all true. Every last twist and turn, and they just seem to keep coming. If you like Herman Melville or Patrick O'Brien's sea stories, you are going to love this book. Hi, I'm Jeff Guo. I am a host on NPR's Planet Money podcast. And the book I'm recommending is called Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World by Claire Jean Kim. And you know the kind of book that takes the world and turns it inside out and shows you like how everything is stitched together? This is that book for Asian American history. I've always believed that everyone should know a little bit about Asian American history because it's kind of like a Rosetta Stone for understanding just more broadly the story of race and rights and equality in America. You know, you go back to the 1880s and the laws that discriminated against Chinese laundries or to World War II and the treatment of Japanese Americans or to this year's Supreme Court case about affirmative action at Harvard. This book unpacks all of those stories, shows you how Asian Americans have tried to navigate these categories of whiteness and blackness. It's really smart and surprising and provocative and sometimes frustrating. It's a book that will really challenge how you think about America. My name is Leah Danella. I'm the senior editor for NBR's Code Switch team. And one of my favorite books of the year was Anansi's Gold by Yipoka Yibo. So tiny disclaimer, I'm a sucker for a good scam story from Theranos to Firefest to the recent Life at Sea cruise debacle. But this one makes all of those look like child's play. Anansi's Gold is the true story of a con artist from Ghana who traveled the world spinning tales that wove together history, corruption, and desire. He capitalized on people's dreams for a liberated Africa with a somewhat less noble aspiration for fabulous wealth to create one of the most successful grifts of all time. And even though you know from the beginning of this book that these tales that this guy is spinning aren't true, his misadventures are so compellingly cataloged that when all is said and done, you kind of forget who you should be rooting for. Tom Heisinger here from NPR Music. Did you know that composer Philip Glass once had to slug a hater off the stage? 
But that's how misunderstood the music we call minimalism was in the 1960s. It's still a bit misunderstood today, and that's one of the many reasons why I love this book titled On Minimalism, Documenting a Musical Movement. Now today, minimalism in its many forms surrounds us, like in pop songs and TV ads and movies, and it's endured long enough to document its history. And these authors have collected six decades of writing about minimalism for a super engaging view of the music and the people that make it. But more importantly, I think the book shines much needed light on the lesser known pioneers who guided minimalism's evolution. Americans like Julius Eastman and Pauline Oliveros to Dutchman Louis Andreessen. The book is extraordinarily researched and it'll satisfy both the nerd and the neophyte. That was Tom Heisinga who suggests On Minimalism, Leah Danella recommending A Nazi's Gold, Jeff Guo with Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World, and Nail Greenfield Boyce who recommends The Wager. For more ideas, you can find the full list of books we love at npr.org slash bestbooks. A Palestinian journalist was killed on Friday in a drone strike in southern Gaza. Samar Abu Dhaka was a cameraman for Al Jazeera. The network says ambulances and rescuers were unable to reach him because of the Israeli bombardment, leaving him to bleed to death for hours. Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief was also injured in the attack. 64 journalists have been killed since the Israel-Hamas war began, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. 57 of, 57 of them were Palestinian. Amen. Amen Moyadeen is an anchor at MSNBC and worked with a cameraman in Gaza. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm so sorry for your loss. Can you tell me about your colleague? Sure. I, I had the chance of uh, working with Samir and meeting him uh, in 2008 when I was actually based in the Gaza Strip as a correspondent at the time for Al Jazeera English. And um, I got to know Samir and his brother very, very well. Um, and, you know, part of being within the Al Jazeera network is that you get to work with all of these uh, amazing people who know the region and know uh, the Gaza Strip extremely well. He was a very dedicated cameraman, uh, somebody who uh, loved his job. He was, um, as we say, a journalist's journalist, somebody who loves to shoot and film and then would come back and tell you the best pictures that he captured. He knew Gaza extremely well. He was a very funny, very witty, but also a very serious uh, cameraman who took his job with a tremendous amount of professionalism. And one of the things that I remember the most about him was he was always a bit of a tech geek. He loved gadgets, he loved devices, he loved uh, lenses and, and all kinds of camera gear. And uh, because he wasn't able to get a lot of it or able to get in and out of Gaza quite easily, Whenever I would uh, go in and out of the Gaza Strip, I would uh, um, always bring him back some equipment or some lens or something that he would want me to get for him, whether it's a new gadget or some new device for his phone. So he was a person that was just extremely uh, remarkable in every sense of the word, and he will be uh, uh, sorely missed as a journalist. But more than that, he, is, um, he was an amazing family man, a father of four, and somebody who loved his kids uh, so much so that he worked really hard to try to get them out of the Gaza Strip a couple of years ago. NPR asked the Israeli military about his death. 
They didn't deny the attack and said the IDF, quote, takes all operationally feasible measures to protect both civilians and journalists. The IDF has never and will never deliberately target journalists. What do you make of their response? Well, look, it's difficult for me to comment on the specifics of this incident just because I'm not in the Gaza Strip and I wouldn't want to speculate uh, on the circumstances. Um, Al Jazeera English and Al Jazeera Arabic have put out a statement uh, based on the eyewitness accounts of the reporters that were there um, in which uh, they described the incident and their inability to actually get to Samir and save him. As you mentioned in your introduction, uh, Al Jazeera was reporting that he was left for five hours bleeding. They tried to coordinate with the Israeli military. They tried to reach uh, humanitarian organizations to be able to re uh, rescue him or try to get him um, an ambulance that was uh, unsuccessful, obviously. But in terms of um, Israel's history with uh, journalists, um, you know, one of the most, um, I think, infamous cases that the world knows about is the killing of Shirin Abba Akhlein. It was an incident in which the Israelis in the beginning said that they did not kill her, that it, she was killed by um, the crossfire with Palestinians. But ultimately, as more and more evidence emerged, as eyewitness accounts emerged, as video evidence emerged, that was not uh, the case. And it became apparent that, in fact, Israel did kill um, uh, Shireen Abakla, who was a Palestinian-American journalist. I think uh, press organizations in the past have documented examples of grave concern in which Israelis have targeted uh, journalists, including most recently in this war in southern Lebanon, in which uh, Israel targeted a group of Lebanese journalists and killed them. So I think it is, um, it, it's, an, it's a situation in which human rights organizations and press freedom organizations uh, have expressed grave concerns in recent years. That's Amen Moyadeen, an, an anchor at MSNBC. Thank you so much for joining us and remembering your friend. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. More parents are turning to melatonin when their kids can't get to sleep. And some pediatricians say that's alarming given the lack of research on the supplement. Here's NPR's Maria Godoy. Lauren Hartstein is a researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies sleep in early childhood. All of a sudden last year, we noticed that there was a big uptick in the number of parents who were regularly giving them melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone produced by your brain that helps regulate sleep-wake cycles. It's also sold as a dietary supplement. Hartstein and her colleagues surveyed the parents of nearly 1,000 children between the ages of 1 to 14 nationwide and were surprised by how many kids were using it. Nearly 6% of preschoolers 1 to 4 had taken it and that that number jumped significantly higher to 18 and 19 percent for school-aged children and preteens. Most of the kids who used melatonin had been taking it for a year or longer, and one in four of them were doing so every single night. Dr. Cora Colette Bruner says that kind of widespread use is deeply troubling. It is terrifying to me that this amount of an unregulated product is being utilized Bruner is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. She says because melatonin is easy to find on store shelves, people assume it's just as safe as taking a vitamin. But melatonin is a hormone, and she says there's no real data on long-term use in children. She says there are concerns it could potentially interfere with puberty, though research is lacking. I 
counsel patients and families about this on a daily basis and my colleagues that when we don't know something in terms of what the long-term effect is, especially on a growing brain, a growing body, then we shouldn't use it without more data. Melatonin supplements aren't regulated the way medications are, and research has found some can contain much more melatonin than what's listed on the label, in some cases, potentially dangerous amounts. One recent study found some gummies, the most common form of melatonin given to kids, contained CBD. The studies are really concerning in the fact that, like, you don't know what you're getting. Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris is a researcher at Northwestern University and a pediatrician at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. She says she understands why desperate parents turn to melatonin to help their kids sleep. I'm also a mom. So for all the parents out there with kids that have sleep issues, I get it. I've been there. I am there. And I have also used melatonin, like when my son was much younger. But she says, given all the unknowns, the focus needs to be on sleep hygiene first. Things like turning off screens at least an hour before bedtime, using blackout shades, and not letting kids stay up more than an hour or two past their normal bedtime on weekends and vacations. Now, if we're at a situation that we have tried everything, they've seen a sleep specialist, you know, we've kind of done all of the things, then I will prescribe melatonin. Dr. Hurd Garris says parents should definitely talk to their pediatrician before giving kids melatonin because it's possible to give too much. Signs of an overdose in kids include irritability, headaches, stomach pains and dizziness, and severe drowsiness. Those are the red flags. Pediatric overdoses of melatonin have risen in the last decade. And while most kids were treated at home, hospitalizations also went up. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that the supplement only be used as a short-term way to help kids get rest. Maria Godoy, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The National Weather Service is warning of some potentially damaging winds starting tomorrow. Much of eastern Massachusetts will be under a high wind warning from 5 in the morning tomorrow through the evening. Some areas could face wind gusts up to 65 miles an hour and could experience downed trees and power lines. National Weather Service is advising people to avoid being outside in forested areas during that time. Commuter Rail Service returns to Lynn tomorrow. The MBTA and commuter rail operator Keolis say that it is nine months ahead of schedule. Service is scheduled to run between Lynn Station and North Station about every half hour during the week and hourly on weekends. Lynn Station was closed in 2022 because of safety concerns. Bruins lost to the Rangers yesterday in overtime 2-1. to one. It'll be mostly cloudy today, the highs around 55 degrees. Cloudy tonight with rain after 9 o'clock, the lows will be around 50 degrees. It's 46 degrees in Boston. WVUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools, and the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. This compelling compilation of works explores Black identity, community, and power. Closes December 31st. More at PEM.org. 
I'm Peter O'Dowd. A new Netflix documentary tells the story of One Four, the Samoan-Australian rap group whose success has come despite continued run-ins with the police. I think it's one thing to be harassed by the police in the street, but it's another thing to be harassed by the police in the studio or, you know, on a tour or when you're trying to kind of make music. That's Here and Now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. They sent my young G home same night. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPR Wine Club. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In the early years of the piano, about 300 years ago, the instrument was called the pianoforte. Unlike the harpsichord, it could play both piano, the Italian word for soft, and forte, loud. Piano Forte is also the title of Yakub Piantek's new documentary. It charts the nerve-wracking journey of young piano players performing in Poland's international Chopin piano competition. Just like the instrument's name, the documentary has a wide range of sound. We knew like from the very beginning that we will like somehow balance between silence and uh, this eruption of noise. Piantek says some people describe the competition as the Piano Olympics. The Chopin International Piano Competition is one of the oldest and uh, one of the most prestigious uh, piano competitions in the world. That's one of those kind of events that can change your life entirely for a young pianist uh, overnight. How did you decide which musicians to follow for this? We decided uh, and we, we, we chosen our protagonists before the competition happened. And like the most honest way to make this documentary for me was to not, you know, to look for a winner, just to find people that I kind of like resonate with the, their stories in a way. Uh, so we just use a gut feeling. But from the very beginning, I kind of knew uh, that I'm not trying to make a film about a winner. Um, probably I will make a film about not winning. Uh, I know personally much more about not winning than winning. What do you think was driving each of the, the, the people that you, that you featured? I think it's like a common thing for all, all the arts in a way, that if you want to be like really good at something, you need to sacrifice. For those people, it means that uh, it's like, you know, nine, 12 hours per day alone uh, with, with an instrument in a practice room, because that's, that's how they live their lives. Uh, and basically for, you know, a year, two years or three years before the competition, that's the whole lives they, 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 they've got. And, but at the end of the day, uh, there's this beautiful moment of like sharing the music.
and maybe I will sound right now like really naive, but uh, I strongly believe that uh, they were participating and they were sacrificing a lot to share the music. Also, because it was uh, the competition was postponed for a year because of COVID, so for some of those people, it was like the very first public performance with a live audience in two years. And you could like feel this kind of like a special magical vibe in the air. And can you tell me more about the teachers who mentor and guide the contestants? Because some of them, like Howe's uh, teacher, um, Vivian Lee, um, she's with him constantly. And she really seems very encouraging. At one point, you know, someone thought that she was his mom. But Eva, her teacher, she's a, she's a bit more tough. Like, talk to me about that dynamic. Yeah, like from the very beginning when uh, uh, I was preparing to like to shoot the film, it was like uh, like the re relationship between the teacher and and our protagonists. Uh, uh, we knew that it's uh, it's crucial part of their lives because like for some of them, um, they're spending more times with uh, those teachers than with their relatives one place in a film that we use like this, you know, kind of like a normal interview to a camera when Vivian is admitting that she she wanted to participate in uh, a year 2000. Uh, but she uh, like, she was a little bit afraid. She was not well prepared and she didn't have like this, you know, this kind of like a concert instinct for that and the guts to uh, enter like the, the big stage. Uh, so, like this kind of like a transition between like a teacher to her pupil, and like what, she, like when you try to imagine like what she feels when she is looking and listening to how her pupil, her student on stage, like he's performing in his name, but also in her name. That, that's that's something that is like really really beautiful and naive and uh, so that's that that's that's a one one side of uh, of being a teacher and uh, of course on the other side you've got the uh, professor true which is like uh, Eva's um, uh, teacher which is like you know Moscow conservatory um, like really traditional uh, and a little bit harsh and tough. <laughs> you know, classical music can often feel inaccessible to a lot of people. How did you think about that as you filmed this? And like, what did you think about the music um, and what that brought to this documentary? Mm. I'm not a musician at all. I remember once uh, I was in a primary school and I was like picked up to a school choir but not because of my voice, but because of my height. And uh, I remember during the rehearsal, my music teacher like just listened to me singing and she said, just lip sync and uh, just be there and pretend that you are singing. That's my individual perspective. And I remember being like for the very first time in a concert hall 
and having this like this feeling of entering like this sacred space or temple of music and i don't have like a knowledge about the music or or back then i didn't have but uh, at the same time i remember a piano recital i was sitting in, on the balcony and i was really emotionally moved and i was really having like this experience that someone is talking to me throughout the music that was also the like the kind of a feeling uh, that i wanted to pass to make the film about you know a really serious matter which is like a really serious uh, piano competition and um, classical music but trying to communicate it also to people who are not listening to that kind of music every day that was Jakub Piantek. He is the director of the new documentary, Piano Forte. It's available in select theaters now. Actor Josh Radner is finding his voice. Real life, it keeps coming, it keeps coming, sunshine. I could use some, I could use some rays of open clarity. For nine years, Josh Radner starred in the hit TV series, How I Met Your Mother. He played Ted Mosby, an architect searching for his future wife. But a painful real life breakup inspired Radner to take a road trip with his dog Nelson and a guitar. It doesn't take that long to learn the basic chords on a guitar. And if you get C, G, D, you know, F, E minor, A minor, you can write thousands of songs. That's kind of the folk tradition, you know, three chords and a truth. Josh Radner is now releasing his debut album. It's called Eulogy Volume One. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, trying to being associated with such a, a, a character that so many people know and are thinking about. I'm in love with her, okay? If you're looking for the word that means caring about someone beyond all rationality and wanting them to have everything they want, no matter how much it destroys you, it's love but you were also trying to express yourself in different ways. Talk to me about that shadow um, <laughs> and living with that. Well, that is a very big question that we certainly don't have enough time to cover in depth. <laughs> well, this is, look, this is a therapy session. This is therapy. Just bill me, we'll, we'll, you'll get your <laughs> full fee. Um, I, I think that as you get to be maybe in your 40s, you've had enough of a kind of sample size of life where you've had some success, you've had some failure, you've had regrets, you have triumphs, you've had, you know, all these things, you've hurt people, you've been hurt. And something about making music, telling stories, I, I still love telling stories. You know, I was a part of a really big nine year story. You know, it's both liberating and imprisoning to be a part of something like that, to be associated with something like that. Um, I'm endlessly grateful for it. And I have some frustrations around it. But luckily, I get to tell stories and I get to keep moving forward. Is it difficult to transition between like television and acting and music? 50% of my skills were transferable and 50% I had to, <laughs> I had to pick up as I, you know, on the job. Um, learning how to, of course, write songs was a whole new thing. 
and and play songs, you know, being calm enough and relaxed enough so that you can play in time, so that your fingers don't shake when you're doing finger picking. There are all sorts of things I've had to learn on the job, um, but they've also been really fun to learn, um, sometimes scary, but in, in the best kind of way. I'm alone, what a pity I won't be soon in New York City when I see you. Please permit me to tell you everything in New York City. So your new album is called Eulogies. And eulogies, that, that means basically like the good words, right? Like, I mean, obviously it's what you deliver at a funeral, but it basically means to deliver good words, right? I don't know that I'd ever heard that definition, but I love it. I think that <laughs> that's a wonderful uh, definition. I'm going to use that from now on. Um, in this case, the, the title of the album, Eulogy, came from this idea that each song that I had written was a bit of an, an elegy or a eulogy to a part of myself, these parts of myself that had served me for a time and were no longer necessary, and I was kind of, you know, thanking them and, and, and laying them to rest. land on like the folk sound of this album um, because it is very folksy you know kind of guitar heavy how, how did you land on that well in some ways it's my taste and what I grew up with you know there was a lot of Bob Dylan and uh, John Denver and Jim Croce and Judy Collins in my house so I, I grew up loving Peter Paul and Mary you know I like I love the sound of an acoustic guitar telling a really good story. Whenever I hear that, it does something to me. It, it calms me down, even when I pick up a guitar and start playing. I wanna call her up, say, how are you? How's things are you doing? All right. And a Eulogies seems to, to mourn a relationship that has been lost. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, was that uh is this about letting go of that relationship that had ended? That song, I'm glad you played some of that. It's called You Can Sleep Alone Tonight. And that's one of my favorite songs on the record. And that's really about um being in a hotel room in New York City and having broken up with someone and feeling very lonely and, and thinking it was a good idea to call them. And I kind of wrote that as a way to talk myself out of that because I didn't think it'd be a good idea for either of us to see each other again. You know, there's a lot of songs that are kind of, baby, it's cold outside, come on over. And this is a song that, you know, says, you know, on second thought, maybe it's not a good idea. <laughs> so it's kind of a sadder but wiser song. You can sleep alone tonight. You feel like you are 17, your back says you are 45, at least it does this morning. Sometimes the, the things that we are making peace with or saying goodbye to, even if it's not literally it's your family, it's the things that you learned growing up or the things that um, were imparted on you. 
do you think that there's a song on this album that particularly stands out in your mind about that? And what are you eulogizing? The final song on the album is called Joshua 4546. And it looks like a Bible verse, but it's actually, I was 45 years old. I was days away from my 46th birthday. My back had gone out. <laughs> so I wrote this song as a, I don't know if it was a pep talk to myself, but I grew up, you know, with stories from the Torah. And, and, and so I, I'm still very moved by sacred literature of all kinds. And so it, it talks about, you know, Joshua and the, the bringing down the walls of Jericho and how the same thing's happening to me, that the walls are coming down. You know, and I sing about becoming a songwriter later in life. So it's, a, it's quite an autobiographical song, but it's also a healing and... Um, there's some real uh, release. Oh, Joshua, he made a mighty sound and the walls came tumbling down in old Jericho. And now I bear his name and I'm doing the same. The walls are coming down. That's actor, filmmaker, and musician Josh Radner talking about his debut album, Eulogy, Volume 1. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Aisha. It was great to talk to you. I wish that I had started sometime in the 90s, but I'm not sure I had much to say. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was composed by BJ Lederman. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 47 degrees in Boston at a minute and a half before 10 o'clock. Coming up next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. And the Boston Foundation, knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give now at wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.